Hello and welcome to the Baseball Wisconsin Podcast. I am your host, Tim Gosler. Now, as promised, we're bringing the lefty to close this game down. We headed up north to Webster to bring in left-hand pitcher Jared Washburn. Now, Coach Washburn is uh, currently the head baseball coach at Webster High School, where he's won back-to-back state championships in 2018 and 2019, the last two seasons that WIA held. Um, before that, he spent 12 years playing professional baseball, uh, won a uh, World Series in 2002, uh, back to his college days at UW Oshkosh. He, as a freshman, a redshirt freshman, he pitched a complete game um, in a 6-2 victory to win the national championship. And then after his third year of school, was the 31st overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft. So, arguably the most storied athlete in Wisconsin baseball history, um, was fortunate enough to sit down with us today and to talk about the ins and outs of his career, what it's like coaching his own sons, and also coming back to Webster, his hometown, and uh, building a dynasty up there. So I know you're going to love this conversation as he also goes into the championship teams he's played and coached on and so much more. Uh, One more reminder to subscribe and share this episode as this will be our last one of the season. Without further ado, head baseball coach at Webster High School and 12-year Major League Baseball veteran, Jared Washburn. Hey, Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, um, for those who don't know you, just give us some background. You, you know, what are you, where'd you grow up and, and play and coach? All right. I'm Jared Washburn, coach of uh, Webster, Tiger, Webster Tigers. And uh, I grew up right in Webster, moved here in fourth grade, uh, went to high school in Webster. And uh, from there, I went and played college ball at UW Oshkosh. Um, got drafted after my third year of school by the Angels and uh, made it to the big leagues. That was in 95. I got drafted, made it to the big leagues in 1998, played there for uh, through the 2005 season, then signed a four-year deal with Seattle Mariners. Uh, right at the end of that deal, they traded me to the Tigers for a couple months, and uh, then I retired after that season. So I got uh, just under 12 years in the big leagues. After that, came back home. My wife is also from Webster and graduated high school here. So we came back and raised our kids here in Webster. And I took over the job uh, as, as a baseball coach, I don't know, eight or nine years ago now. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, I mean, there's so much more there, but you're, you're a humble guy. So I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. Um, so your playing days, like you've played at all levels, won World Series, College World Series, you know, Major League, you know, MLB World Series. Um, now you're coaching high school and in your hometown. I mean, it's a great story. It's a great Hollywood story. Like, as you think about your coaching hat now, like, who has influenced you the most? The coaches along the way that you see yourself in and, and as you mold and, and, and develop who you are as a coach? Uh, well, it started right with my high school coach. He was, it was Rusty Helen back when I was in high school at Webster. And, and uh, you know, he was a huge influence on me as far as teaching me the game and then and just being a great friend after high school. And and uh, I even talked him into uh, when I came back and took the job as as a coach at Webster. I talked him into coming back and helping me a couple of years. So uh, for that first state cha- state championship run, he was on the coaching staff and a big part of that. So, uh, you know, he was he was huge in in. Uh, you know, all of my baseball life. And then from there I had, you know, Tom Lechner, he was a great coach, still a great friend. 
you know, he would, even after I left college, uh, he would call me at midnight sometimes after I'd pitch and have a rough game or something. Be like, Hey, you're breaking your hands late on this or some little mechanical flaw I was doing or whatever. And sure enough, I'd fix it. And the next, the next month or so I'd be locked in again mechanically. So, you know, uh, that was, yeah, one of the, another one of the coaches that had a huge influence on me. And then when you get to the big leagues, you know, guys like, uh, Mike Sosha, huge, huge influence, great manager, great coach, great guy. Uh, Joe Madden, Buddy Black, uh, those guys are, you know, that, that staff we had with the Angels the year we won the World Series, we had Social was our manager and Joe Madden was our bench coach, Buddy Black was our pitching coach, Ron Renicky was our third base coach, so that's four guys on our coaching staff that ended up at some point in their careers after that winning a manager of the year award in the big league, so pretty special coaching staff that, that uh, I got to play for on that season and and uh, each guy had their own little things that they had to offer and, and uh, learned a lot from all of them. I also would like to just jump in a little bit. So you went to high school, college, professional coaches, some, some huge names on there. Like if you go back to high school, like what, what lessons did he teach you when you were a high school student, high school player that you think are still with you today or maybe that you use in your program? Uh, you know, just – different things like respecting the game and working your butt off every day, not taking anything for granted. Um, you know, he was, he was one that taught me, um, as, as we got into the coaching that never assume a kid knows anything, whether it's no matter the littlest, most, you know, obvious detail that you think everybody that plays baseball knows, they're kids. So never assume anything. So, uh, always make sure you cover every little single detail and, and just drive it home. And, and fundamentally it, you got to do, you know, hammer, hammer down the fundamentals to make sure you have a su successful program. So that's, that's a couple of the things that he really, uh, helped instill in me. You talk about your, you, you know, you go to Oshkosh, Tom Lechner, you know, is a name you hear all over the state of Wisconsin um, for obvious reasons. But guys that didn't play for him, the guys that didn't have that experience, who didn't get those midnight phone calls after an outing, like what was it about him that that maybe the most as a coach? Uh, you know, just his his uh, intensity was was obviously, I think, is well known. He was a he was an extremely intense guy, loved to win. And, uh, it was, it was, you know, always attention to every little single detail we spent as a, he kind of was in charge of the pitchers. So, uh, being a pitcher, we spent, I don't know how many hours in my college career in a dance studio with a room full of mirrors and just going over all your mechanics and just over and over and over the repetition. So it just became second nature. And, things like that, that he would, you know, just make sure that you had down and it, it was that. And then it's just, you know, the attitude of, of, uh, Hey, we're the best. We're going to go out and show you. And that was kind of one of the things that when we were in college, we, we took on the field and we went out there with a lot of confidence and I think it definitely helped us win. All right. So you won a national championship at Oshkosh. Um, 
second round draft pick, you get into pro ball. Like what are the biggest differences between, you know, college baseball at that level or any level and then transition to pro ball? Like what, what doesn't the average guy know, the average coach know about that transition? Um, I mean, I guess the, the fairly obvious things are, are, you know, the mistakes almost never you get away with each level of, of minor league ball. Once you get into pro ball, each level you go up, you're allowed fewer mistakes. And, and I think if you're a hitter, you have to, to be able to be successful. You have to be able to capitalize on any little mistakes. So, um, I don't know if that's something that the average fan doesn't know. Cause I, that seems like it's a fairly obvious answer, but, um, it's just, it, it's a grind. I know that that's something that you, you look at it from afar and think, Oh, that's the greatest lifestyle in the world be a pro ball player. But, um, when you start out and you get drafted and the first team you go to is Boise, Idaho, and you're, uh, on bus, long bus rides every day and, and going to little towns and playing, staying in crappy hotels and, and not getting paid hardly anything in the minor leagues. It, it makes for a long, hard road, but, um, if you love the game and keep working hard and a couple of bounces go your way, it might all work out. Well, that's great. And obviously you mentioned, you know, on that angel staff, those, those, those amazing guys and so many people along the way, like from pro ball, um, what are the biggest lessons that stand out to you that you, you bring back to your role as a high school coach? Like, what did you learn at that level on the coaching side, dealing with men, dealing with professional ball players that you learned from a Mike Sosha or other guys that you mentioned? Uh, I think the biggest thing um, I took like from Sosha and his staff is just the, how important team chemistry is and how important it is to stay loose and have fun and, I mean, so she, and and Joe Madden, after he left there and then went and took manager job, those guys are famous for some of the crazy stuff that goes on in spring training just to create team chemistry and, and keep things light. And, and, you know, we'd have team meetings every morning in spring training and he would have guys stand up and introduce themselves and tell, tell a little bit about themselves. And, and uh, he'd always try to find out their hobbies and things. And then he'd come up with some crazy off the wall, like, some guy would like said, yeah, I like to cook. He's ah, oh, what do, what's your favorite thing to cook? And they'd say, ah, oh, chicken fajitas. That's my specialty. And he's like, all right, well, next week you're going to go buy enough ingredients and you're going to cook chicken fajitas for the entire team. Well, spring training, there's like 75 guys in, in camp. So that's, that's quite a task. But I mean, he was always doing stuff like that. And one guy liked racing remote control cars. And so we ended up having a pit crew and, two teams created and we had this huge race on the field and, and Percival was one of the, he took the other car. And so me and him were on one team and we ended up going and finding this professional driver to come in and drive for us. And I mean, it was fun. Just stuff like that was, I brought a live ostrich into the clubhouse one time because he sent me and a couple of guys to the ostrich festival because he felt like he was tied down with games and wanted to go see it. But, his hours of work wouldn't allow it. So we wanted to find out what the ostrich festival was all about. So I found a guy who owned the ostriches and we brought one right into the clubhouse that next morning. So I mean, stuff like that was, it kept the team light, kept everybody laughing, kept everybody loose and allowed you to just relax and go and do your job a little better. So 
everybody got along and everyone had fun. So we've tried to take that into our high school team and, and do fun stuff and keep everybody light. And, and, and uh, you know, one thing I really try to stress with the kids is, is every single kid in, no matter how good you are, you're going to fail more often than you are going to succeed. And so we just got to, I try to make sure and tell them, Hey, there's, there's times you're going to, you're not going to be good. And, but if you get down on yourself and worry about me going to be mad at you, uh, don't worry about that. I'm not ever going to be mad at you. And if you get down on yourself, you're just going to make your job harder in the future. So we really stress that and be positive and, and learn from your mistakes and move forward and never look in the rear view mirror. Well, I'm glad you brought it into brought it back to Webster because that's where I wanted to go next. I want to just give us the scope of, of, of baseball inside of Webster. Obviously, you grew up there. You've come back there um, and everything along the way. Like, how does the kids start playing baseball Webster? Get us from that, that, that early age all the way through the high school. What is the what does the community baseball look like? Uh, well, that was when I first retired. That was my older boy was, I think, if, he was like around 10 or 11 at the time. So. I kind of started coaching their age kids and, and working with the youth and, and bringing, trying to build a program through the youth. And that's the biggest reason that our high school program has turned into a, to a, such a, a strength, a strong program for us is just having such a good youthful uh, program going right now and working hard on, you know, just teaching the fundamentals. We've had, since I've moved up the ranks and then became a high school coach, we've had just constant every single year, it seems like different parents are stepping up and coaching and helping do this and that. It's just kind of been a seamless transition from one year to the next as far as just people stepping up and, and giving their time and wanting their kids to be the next kids to be coming into the high school, high school program and be successful. So, yeah, we got, you know, organized baseball starting with I think third grade is I think when actually they start playing games, but we have T-ball going from right from kindergarten on up. And, uh, and then when they get into third grade, they start playing games against other towns around the area. And we try to get them, you know, as, as many games as we can and push them as much as we can. And one thing I always tell the parents is at this age, I don't care if you win a game. Um, it's not at all about winning games when they're kids. It's about teaching them the right way to play learning the fundamentals correctly. And then that'll transition into them being a good ball player when they get to high school. And then that transfers transit translates into the winning. So uh, it's, we really, really try to pound the fundamentals. And another thing I do is I make sure every single kid on every team in the youth program pitches. So um, that's, the, the very first year I took over the head coach, you know, we kind of were going through practice the first couple of days and the, the kids, the two best kids on the team arm wise while playing catch. I'm like, Hey, you got a great arm. You're going to pitch for me this year. And both of them said, well, I've never pitched before. I, I'm scared to pitch. I don't want to pitch. So from that point forward, I'm like, Hey, every kid's got a pitch. So I don't want them getting to high school, having a good arm. And then all of a sudden go, well, now you have to pitch. I want them to grow up pitching and being comfortable with it. So, um, so that's what we do. And then, and then, uh, this is a personal feeling myself is every single kid 
when they learn how to pitch, when we teach them at a young age, they 100% of the time throw out of the stretch. And then I don't, I don't ever let a kid throw out of the windup until they get to high school. And just that's simply because in my opinion, 99% of every important game defining pitch you're going to throw in your career is going to be with guys on base. So I want you to be with guys on base, not at all thinking, man, I wish I was in the mind up. I'm, I'm not comfortable out of the stretch. So in my opinion, if you grow up thrown out of the stretch, then that's not, that's going to be one less thing in your mind. You're thinking about when it's time to make that big pitch. No, I want to stay there for a little bit. So do you have kids when they get to high school, do you have, do a lot of kids stay in the stretch for all four years? Do some kids want to want to work the windup? Like how do you make that decision when they get to high school? Uh, the, I leave it up to them at that stage. You know, they all grow up watching TV and, you know, wanting to have a crazy windup like the big leaguers and stuff like that. So I let them try it. Um, if it's all personal preference and, and then we, we just decide as, as between me and that player, uh, if that's something that is going to work for them or if it's not. And, you know, honestly, I'd say it ends up being about 50, 50, as far as some about 50% of them just say, Nope, I'm just, I'm staying stretch. I'm going to just pitch out of the stretch. This is how I'm comfortable. And then about half of the other ones say, I want to try the windup. And, and uh, out of those, it ends up probably being about half of those that, the windup was works just fine for him and others it's not you know, my oldest son jack he was a oh, i gotta go wind up i can throw harder out of the windup well you can't but you think that and and it ended up being where he'd be out of the windup but he'd walk a leadoff batter every time anyway so it took a while for me to convince him that oh, maybe you shouldn't go out of the windup so but uh, he ended up getting pretty good at it and now i think he's tweaked a few things and finally in did something in the windup that I told him he should do all along and, and it's working good for him. Now he said. That's great. So you, you, now, now we're into high school, right? The kid has come up youth program, third grade out of the stretch high school. Now, how many teams do you guys have? Do you have a, a three teams? Do you have a JV two, a JV one and a varsity or do you guys just carry two teams? We just have two teams and we, you know, we, end up with uh, just probably barely enough to have the JV and the varsity team. We, you know, it's pretty small school. We are enrollments about 180 and uh, you know, we get about between 20 and 24 kids out a year is, is right about it. And then when you add in grade issues and suspensions or whatever else you end up, running into that every coach out there has had to deal with that uh, there's times that, that uh, we're, we got 18 kids that can play and JV and varsity are playing at the same time. So you hope for no injuries then. <laughs> well, what, what's, what's amazing, you know, we, on this show, we've had coaches that have a, you know, a school that's got 2000 kids and they have, you know, 90 kids coming out for baseball. So they have a really, structured tryout procedure and the grading out process and evaluations and they're cutting sometimes 45, 50 kids. So for you, nice. <laughs> so for you, like, how do you run your tryouts? I mean, do you guys just go right into practice mode because you know, you're keeping everybody. How does that look like for you guys? Yeah. Yeah. There's no tryout. It's, 
that first day of practice, we jump right in and we start teaching and uh, start working and hoping that ev that every single kid is, that's there that day finishes the year with you. So that's, that's about it. And almost, I, I still have never, never in my coaching career had a first day of practice outside. It's been in the gym every single time. This year, I'm thinking we might get lucky because of the later start. So we, we should be okay this year, I'm thinking. Well, and that's, I mean, I think the guys in the South right now are starting to realize, you know, if, if you see on the news, right, the guys, as we're recording this, it's February 16th and there's snow in Texas and they don't know what to do. But, you know, us here, hey. uh, we, we've, we've spent most of our, our baseball lives in a gym. So obviously growing up in Webster, going to Oshkosh, like, how do you best maximize the indoor space? And I don't know what your facility is like, but like, there's, there's a, there's guys that do it really well and guys that don't. So I'm assuming you're someone who does it really well. Like how do you structure an indoor practice? Uh, we end up having to really, really uh, try to get creative because we end up with, if it's spring and there's, it's indoor, we end up having, we have two gyms. We have a big gym with a divider that comes down. And then we have a smaller gym. So the smaller gym is where the batting cage is at. And we end up having girls softball, baseball, and track are indoor practicing in the spring almost all, all the time. So you end up having to split those two spaces into three teams, uh, which makes you get real creative. We use hallways in the school for infield drills as far as you know rolling balls back and forth and working on footwork and in hands and stuff like that um different spots on walls for with wiffle ball hitting drills uh we try to maximize the space as much as possible um we do our long tosses in you know in a gym but end up not doing it together because you can't get long so you do it into the divider in the middle and simulate a long toss. Um, we do end up with, if we're early in the season where it is all three uh, teams, we will always go at least twice a week at 6 a.m. practice just so we get all that space to ourselves and we can actually spread it out, get a uh, infield set up so we can run through pickoff plays and bunt coverages and things like that. Uh, where you're a lot, you need the, the space to actually go through it. And, uh, but yeah, you just, you get, you have to get real creative when it comes to uh, using gyms, especially gyms as small as ours and, and having to share them. No, there's, there's no question. And, I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, kind of getting into your program more, obviously, you know, got through tryouts, we get into the season. You talked about, you know, from your days playing with the Angels and, and the, the culture Mike Social created, like, are there things that you guys do systematically to create that chemistry, to create some fun, things that you, that are unique to your program? I wouldn't say, you know, anything specific. Uh, each group of kids seems to be different. Um, with Jack's group that graduated two years ago, they had, uh, there was, you know, four really strong kids in that class and three of them were, were real strong leaders. So, uh, it, I, I, I told, I told a lot of people that year that they were seniors 
that that'll be the easiest coaching job that maybe any coach has ever had. I, I really didn't have to hardly do anything. I'd show up to practice and those guys would take charge and, Hey, we get, let's do our warm up. Now we're going into these drills, those drills. And, and it was, I mean, we would have fun and laugh occasionally, but those kids were so focused on getting back to state, trying to win another state championship and all the young guys just kind of followed them. And it was, it was easy for me, but now this year is going to be a little different. We got my younger son is a senior now, and he's got another kid in his class or two, two others. So there's, there'll be three really strong seniors. And, and uh, so they're just going to have to kind of step into that leadership role and we'll see where that takes us. But like I say, every group of kids is different. And you got to kind of adjust and decide what, what will work best for each kid and, and uh, come up with creative things to, make everyone laugh and have fun and, and keep them loose. Well, one thing I've, I've noticed in just talking before we start recording in a school, your size, you have a lot of multi-sport kids. Right. Almost every kid. Um, so I'd like to hear what you think the benefits are in there. And it sounds like you just have a very competitive group. You know, these high level ultra focused kids are usually extremely competitive. Um, so I'd like to hear, what multi-sports do to your kids and then like kind of how do you create competition in your program? I, I think within the program, the competition kind of creates itself as far as past success. And then the kids just wanting to be a part of that and wanting to be able to put their stamp on future success. So, uh, you know, with, with past successes, all those kids just want to continue that in, in not let the, the drop off come with them. So that I think itself drives the kids to want to get as good as they can and, and win jobs and, and those sorts of things to where uh, that kind of, as far as competition for each individual just drives them. They, they just, they, they don't want to be the ones that the, that the, the drop happens with. So um the multi-sport thing is I've always said that that's huge. You know, it's, there's so many benefits to just kids being able to go out and play multiple sports as far as learning different skills, teamwork things, um, allowing different muscle groups to be used, allowing different muscle groups to be rested that are overworked during certain sports. Um, you know, stay away from the burnout of one sport, just being in a, a, too much of a burden and, and having it done too often. Uh, it's, I could go on and on and on, I think, about the, the benefits for this, for, for just the kids being able to do multiple sports. So, I mean, we got kids right now, almost all the kids are in, in either hockey or basketball and, and, uh, that'll be winding down here and, uh, depending on how long playoffs goes, you know, in plenty of time for them to then, you know, take, take a little bit of time off and then have plenty of time to ramp up and get ready for the baseball season, as opposed to years past where it's kind of been a basketball's done, baseball starts next week type of thing. So um, that's, I think, you know, COVID has created a lot of uh, difficulties for everybody in many different aspects of life. But I think the, this is one positive that it has created for, for baseball coaches, I believe in the state of Wisconsin, as far as 
the later start to the season, I think is, is I don't see any reason why it is a negative. Um, weather in Wisconsin, as we all know, sucks, especially in the northern half. Uh, so starting late like this, hopefully the weather will be more of a spring season and, and uh, we won't be playing on frozen fields and snow in the corners. So um, those types of things, I think, are a benefit for us this year. Well, one thing I'd like to touch on is, and you kind of went there, is with multi-sport athletes, they're working different body parts, different muscles, different types of coaching, but they're also getting a rest. And I'm, I'm guessing we're talking about arms. And, you know, down in other parts of the, even the state of Wisconsin, we're seeing burnout, higher injury rates, kids throwing year round. Like, what's your philosophy? And, and has that changed over time from maybe when you were growing up and playing at that age and, and where you are now? So if you want to just go into you know, maybe the year on calendar, obviously you can use your sons as examples if you'd like. Um, what's your thought process there? Yeah, I have no problem using my sons. And, and that's kind of what I tell all the kids here. And, and uh, Owen, he's uh, like, like I say, he's a senior this year and, and he's going to be going to the next level. And he got recruited both as a hitter and a pitcher. So his arm obviously is very important. Um, and he's doing exactly the same things Jack did a couple of years ago to get ready. When uh, they'll play their spring season, they go into summer ball, play a summer ball season, end up with quite a few games under their belt for the year. Uh, both of them did a little bit of fall ball things uh, throughout the years. But as soon as that fall ball season is done, they shut it down totally arm wise. Um, they won't. So say they play until right around the 1st of October. They'll take October, November, and December and not touch a baseball. The only time they're touching a baseball is if they go out and hit balls in the cage. They touch a baseball to put it in the bucket so they can throw it back in the cage. Um, but throwing-wise, they're totally shut down for about three months. And then it's doing your arm exercises, doing the little job exercises or band exercises and things like that to work the little muscles in the shoulder, keep them in shape, rebuild them after the breakdown of, of throwing so many innings over the summer and spring and summer season. And then uh, once that New Year's hits, then they'll start gradually working back into throwing a little bit and getting their arm in shape. And, and it's, it's a really, really gradual process into uh, the spring season. So I think it allows them not to have to rush and, and then build the arm strength correctly and, and uh, knock on wood, I've, I've never had a kid have to sit out for our high school season because of an arm injury. Well, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you went there. Cause like, you know, Dr. James Andrews, right. Two to three months off. That's where a lot of the data is, but I feel like a lot of guys get caught up into, do you totally shut it down for the fall, for our example, fall, winter, or do you just stop pitching? You know, like there's guys that'll continue to throw year round thinking, I just got to keep, you know, some, keep it lubricated, I guess, is one way to think about it. Or guys that, you know, they need to just don't touch a baseball at all. So you, you're of the camp that don't touch a baseball, give that full rest two to three months, pick her back up after New Year's. That, that's my thought. And, and that's how I was when I played. Um, it worked for me. And I'm definitely not up on all the science. And, and I know there's a lot of data out there now and different schools of thought. And I'm not saying I'm right and they're wrong. I'm just saying it works for me and it's worked for my boys uh, and it's worked for our high school boys at Webster. So um, 
it's again, I think, I think that's just like everything else in life, different things work for different people. And I used to play with, you know, something like ice in your arm after you pitch. I played with guys that they had to ice every time. And that I played with guys that said, Oh, if they are, if they ice, they'd be sore for a week. So it's, it, it's throwing the same exact way. Some guys would, yeah, they, they take a week off and then they start throwing again in the off season. And I always thought they were crazy, but it's what worked for them. And uh, you know, some guys would always stay healthy by doing that. So obviously that was the right thing for them and their body. But um, I think, I think all, all the muscles, especially for a young kid growing up need that rest and need to be able to recharge and regenerate. And, and uh, it's, you know, they're growing so much at that age that, you know, I think it just needs that, that time off. So just on the pitching side, like, I mean, you've been in that sphere for most of your life. How has pitching changed? I mean, like, you know, at the highest level, you keep hearing about, you know, you guys are throwing harder than ever, but they're throwing more off speed than ever. Um, you know, <laughs> thrown out of the stretch. Um, like, you know, there's a bunch of different organizations that are popping up all over the country. And, you know, if it's weighted ball training or J bands or Jobs or anything else, like how has pitching changed over time? And uh, I'd like to know where you started and, and kind of where you are now and what you see in that landscape. To be totally honest with you, I don't watch any big league ball at all anymore unless my kids happen to have it on in the summertime, which we hardly have TV on in the summer. So um, any any big league news or, or highlights or anything like that is all through my kids. Um, so I'm not really maybe the best to answer that question. I don't I, – I know when I do watch a game, I will watch some playoffs because playoff baseball is just great to watch. But um, I know for a fact, yeah, it's definitely crazy when you see these games and, and the, uh, the uh, radar guns up there and things like every single team has a guy that throws a hundred now. And um, I, you know, I, I think it's just like anything else. Everything's evolved with training and different techniques for building strength and all that. But uh, you know, I've, I think the arm injuries are up a little bit too. So I don't know. I'm sure that goes hand in hand, but it's, uh, it's, it's just, I'm not sure exactly if why, what their thought process is on the more breaking balls. Um, I don't watch closely enough to know exactly what, what they're thinking there, but uh, I, I can tell you, I'm not really an analytics guy. I'm more of a old school type of guy. And, and, uh, I lived and died with my fastball. I know when I played, I, I, I remember two games the, the year we won the World Series in 02. Uh, I came back after the All-Star break and my arm was feeling really fresh. And I would, I would throw about 90, 85 to 90% fastballs every game anyway. But these, I had two games right after the All-Star break and my fastball felt good. It had extra life and Back then, they didn't have anything to do with spin rate or any of that, but I must have had fairly good spin rate because I would throw 88 to 92, 93, and guys really never squared it up that that often. But I threw a, a game. I went like seven innings. I threw 104 pitches, and 102 of them were fastballs. And that game, I gave up three hits and one run. And then the next game, I threw eight innings, 
and I gave up four hits in one run, and I threw 109 pitches, and 104 of them were fastballs. So it was – I was a fastball guy, and I still believe that now that kids should just throw their fastball for a strike. That's the best pitch there is, and if you can locate your fastball, you're going to be successful. Love it. All right. I, I appreciate that. And uh, some of those numbers are just amazing. You think about, you know, like you said, gripping 109 pitches and 104 fastballs. Is that what it was? And eight in yeah. Yep. All right. So like were you getting ready to pitch a season, obviously you had the shutdown, but like when you was time to build up, were you more of a long toss guy? Would you go yeah. out to 350? Would you stay at like 180 and just stay on top of the baseball? Like how, what was your long toss program like? Well, back then it was, it was same thing. I was in the gym. So, uh, I really didn't know how far I was going because I was pretty much doing it into a net by myself, but yeah, I loved long toss and building the arm strength through that. So, uh, you know, I, that was my entire career. That was how I, when I did start playing catch, I'd, you know, gradual into it and, and get into that long toss to where I was, you know, 15, 20 minutes of, firing it as far as I could basically and uh, building the arm strength and getting the arm shape that way. All right. So as I, as we talked before, I want to pivot here a bit into just the teams you've been on. So, I mean, very few people get to win the last game of the season at any level and you've done it at every level. So like, what is it about championship teams? Um, like if, if you think about even just take you back to college, you know, D3 World Series champs. Like, what was it about that team that made it so special that you thought maybe clicked at the right time or if it was all year that led you guys to hoist that trophy? Uh, I think it it starts away from the field. And obviously, every team that wins a championship has talent. There's that. I don't even have to cover that. But two, two uh, con- constants with every single team that I've been a part of that won a championship was confidence. And that, that means confidence in yourself, confidence in your teammates, confidence that you're the better team. And then the team chemistry part. The team chemistry is huge. Uh, a team that loves each other uh, is willing to do whatever it takes to win. And that whether that be if you're the cleanup hitter and you're asked to bunt, I don't care if it helps our team win, I'm going to bunt. You know, if it means just sacrificing yourself and giving up, your, giving up the run, or yourself so you can move a runner over, you know, different things like that. Little things that no egos ever get in the way because the only thing you really care about is all those other guys wearing the same uniform. All right. So confidence, chemistry, kind of a sports psychology. I I, I like reading up on it. I'm a social studies teacher. I'm, I'm into it. Fascinated by it. Confidence is something I always want to learn more about. Like, in your opinion, how does one build confidence? Because I feel a lot of high school kids, they ride their previous at bat, they ride their last outing and that determines their level of confidence. So. No question. Absolutely. Right. So how how do we, how do we change that? Well, and I I touched on it a little bit earlier, but I start day one of practice telling every single kid that he's going to fail and making sure he knows it and he has to prepare for it and be able to, not let that affect the next at bat. And, and uh, I'm always, I, when I'm coaching third base, 
every single game. I bet I say it 50 times a game. Um, I'll say it to the pitcher when I'm on the dugout. I'll say it to the batter when he's at the plate. I'll say it to a kid in the field who just made an error. But I always yell next pitch. And I always want them thinking about the next pitch. I don't ever want them thinking about the previous pitch. And that is one thing I preach in, in practice and in games. And, you know, it's, and I, I always tell them it's, we're always have to worry about the next pitch because you can't ever go back and change it. All you can do is realize what mistake you made, try to learn from it, try to move forward. And, you know, if you try, if you prepare them every day for knowing that they're going to fail, I think it, allows them to deal with that failure a lot easier. Just got me thinking, right? Mental game, we think Ken Revisa. Was he with the Angels? Yeah, I knew Kenny well. Great man. Give, give us give us something from, from Ken. Obviously, past recently, like your experience with Ken Revisa. Okay, I def, I, every single pitcher on my team knows the name Ken Revisa because I talk about him a lot and the, the psychology of it and all that stuff. And he was big into uh, the reason they know about it is because I, I make sure every single pitcher on my team has an imaginary toilet on the back of the mouth. And this was from, directly from Ken. And he would always say, when, when the crap happens, when you make a bad pitch, when you give up a homer, or when just crap is going bad, you just take a deep breath, walk to the backside of that mound, and flush that toilet. Just flush all the crap down and then move forward and go on to the next pitch. So, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a valuable thing that Kenny taught me and uh, tried to pass that on to all the youngsters. That's great. Appreciate that. Um, I just feel like that is I don't know, one of the later trends that coaches are finally getting into at all, even down to the high school level is the Ken Revisa work. You know, if it's heads up baseball or Brian Kane and, and getting into that side of the game. Um, so, so I appreciate that. Um, I know you don't watch a lot of major league baseball, but I, I do wonder like, what are you working on? What have you learned recently about maybe it's skill development. Maybe it's something your kids are going through in their training. That's made you rethink how you taught something or made you, you know, switch a little bit on, on something you do inside your program. I really don't know if there's anything. Uh, I mean, we make little tweaks here and there to, to different drills we'll do. Uh, but, you know, I can't really think of anything that I, I've seen in the last year or so that I'm like, oh, yeah, we have to rethink how we're doing this because that's much better and I see why. Um, I'm not saying I have all the answers and I'm not saying everything I'm doing is right, but uh, I, I haven't really changed the way I'm teaching it all lately. All right, well, I got two more questions for you. One is it's more of a statement like baseball in the state of Wisconsin means a lot to you. I mean, you yep. start, you, it, like, so when I bring up baseball in the state of Wisconsin, like what comes to mind? Underrated for sure. Um, you know, these last few years with, with uh, my boys having, some good talent in the game and being able to play this club baseball with, uh, you know, for the top, top teams in the state for like GRB and sticks and things like that. And then hitters there another great program. My boys didn't haven't played for them, but they played against them a lot. Just seeing the amount of 
very, very talented kids in the state uh, just makes me cry that the Badgers don't have baseball. Because <laughs> I know, uh, personally, I know a lot of the kids and they've gone on to, you know, SEC schools or Pac-12 schools or Big 12 schools, you know, big time D1 schools and and uh, talking to a lot of them or their parents over the years. And that's all, almost every one of them are like, yeah, he, he'd go to Wisconsin if they had baseball. And and uh, so it's a it's a shame that they don't. But uh, but yeah, I think it's I think it's starting really to get recruited a lot harder. Uh, but uh, it's it's been underrated for a lot of years for the, the amount of highly talented baseball players that we have in the state. And it's it's good to see that we're getting a lot more uh, publicity nowadays in activity because, you know, kids like Kelnick a couple years ago in the first round and and the Vukovic kid last year was drafted really high and Gavin Locks and I mean we're getting you know legit studs coming out of the state and it's it's cool to see well and you know you could be doing so many things after your career and you, you choose to coach high school in your hometown in northern Wisconsin so um you know as a state I think that says a lot says a lot about you um last thing like if you could leave other coaches who listen to this with some advice you know as they are maybe getting into their seasons here, uh, you know, new coaches or veteran coaches, you know, what comes to mind if you could pass along some advice? Um, the biggest thing is just keep it fun. I mean, it's a hard game and, and kids get frustrated easily. And, you know, that's, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier when I was talking about how I try to stay positive and keep it light and, and uh, get kids to not be down on themselves. But if you, if you keep it fun and, and try to, allow it to be a relaxed atmosphere and then the kids will have fun and then the kids will do better. The more relaxed they are, the better they're going to do. And, and uh, I think it's your job as a coach to create that atmosphere that a kid is allowed to fail and, and not have to worry about getting benched or having getting yelled at about it and, and things like that. So it's, it's, that's important. And there it is. Huge thank you goes out to Jared for taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down with us today. Um, my knowledge he's the only guest that has his own wikipedia page the measure of success on this podcast no but on a serious note um want to thank you to the listeners who have tuned in for for the 14 episodes so far um, we are going to put a pause on the podcast um, as the high school season is cranking up uh, while college baseball is in full swing and we turn our attentions to all the great things in the game of baseball across our state of wisconsin Thanks once again to the listeners and the guests and everyone who has taken time to send a message. If it's an email or a text or a DM, um, your support has been outstanding. And until next time, um, have a great rest of your day.